Blog Talk Radio. presents Eastern History, Stories and Memories by the Pilots Who Flew the Planes of Pitcairn Aviation, Eastern Air Transport, and Eastern Airlines. We're fortunate to have at our disposal over 40 years of history as told by the pilots of this great airline. Your producer and Admiral John Engel edited a book titled The Best of Repartee After 30 Years of Magazines had been published and distributed to REPA members affiliates and spouses of those that had passed away. The magazine was the standard which other pilot retiree associations strive to equal. Although repartee is no longer published in magazine form, editor Captain Jim Holder, who's with us today, and we'll hear from Jim at the end of our uh, program, has now published a smaller version, a newsletter, but it's still called repartee. Got mine in the mail, Jim, and it's a great job. Congratulations. Uh, Keep them coming, please. We're hoping to continue broadcasting great articles as they become available by the Eastern family of employees. Now let's get the show started here. Eastern's whisper jets. The noisiest section is the pilot's compartment. We keep the door closed. In the cabin, it's quiet. The jets and the noise are behind you. Whisper Jet climbs to smooth cruising altitude faster than any other jet airliner. It's the most relaxing plane there is. Fly Eastern. See how much better an airline can be.
Our stories range from the sounds you just heard, or better stated, from the male wings to the huge Lockheed L-1011 TriStar, also known as the Whisper Liner. As with all our radio broadcasts, here we do an Eastern commercial, and we've just <laughs> played the commercial, so let's get into the program. As we like to tell our first-time listeners, uh, you can listen in with your smartphone, or and I see on my board that we do have several on on the uh, board today, or you can go to our radio show provider at blogtalkradio.com. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Click the start arrow. Remember, it must be at 3 p.m. or you will be given the message that the show has not yet begun. Many just call in to the show at 213-816-1611. That's a simple number, 213-816-1611. This will put you right on the producer's board, and all you have to do to share your comments or join our discussion is to touch the number one on your smartphone's keyboard. That will tell the producer that to unmute your phone's microphone, and then you can join the fun. Now, you can choose to listen or talk with the host. Last week in Episode 4, we read stories from the early newsletters about stories like the Eastern pilot who soloed Charles Lindbergh and the saga of Flight 85, DC-3, DC rather, that was lost uh, en route to Nashville, and a DC-2 lost in the fog and short on fuel on top of that. Stories about the early days of Eastern's history is what we bring to you here at 3 p.m., on Thursdays, we decided to present the favorite short stories of your producer over the years of the Repartee magazine. So we will start today's show with this one. Hope you enjoy it. It's called East Fly Reckenbacher's Flying Circus. Captain Tom Bartley and wrote this for the 1986 issue of Repartee. Title, Nostalgic Memories of Rickenbacker's Flying Circus. My debut with Eastern Airlines was in May of 1939 on a flight from Atlanta to San Antonio in a DC-2. My captain was a brave man. He gave me a landing. We survived, and I turned around to taxi back. Then the real work began. Flying a DC-2 was child's play compared to taxiing one with that handbrake and rudder pedal combination. I went lurching along, over-controlling right and left in a demonstration of how not to taxi an airplane. Finally, I asked the captain if he would like to take it. What for? He said. I think he was really surprised to keep from stacking the passengers in the aisle, I replied. To hell with the blank, blank passengers, he shouted. Of course, what he really meant was that I had to learn to taxi a DC-2 sooner or later, even if it was a rough job at first. But I don't think the cash customers approved of any on-the-job training. Some weeks went by. I had finally learned to taxi a DC-2, and I was a co-pilot on a flight from San Antonio to, to Atlanta with scheduled stops in Houston, New Orleans, Mobile, and Montgomery. The weather was routine except at New Orleans where it was socked in tight, W-O-X-O-F, weather and visibility 
undetermined by fog. The weather was routine except at New Orleans where it was socked in. Well, that story ended kind of fast, and uh, I can't tell you the rest of it, but it's a, it was a terrific story when I recorded it. But I recall now, I recorded two of these uh, short stories by Tom Bartley, and I think I picked up the one that I had not completed. So we'll try to present that in next, uh, next week's show. But we do have a couple of more stories, and I'm going to turn to those. But Captain Tom Bartley shared several great stories over his leap of years, and uh, they were printed in Repartee, and another excellent writer of true aviation stories about his military and eastern days as a pilot, uh, as you would have uh, heard today if the story was completed. We'll bring you more as we share these repartee stories from the past history of our great airline. You know, Eastern Airlines was a most unique company in that it had no prejudice in its hiring practices. And in fact, Eastern employed as one of its pilots, a pilot who once fought against America in the skies over Germany. Yes, the Eastern pilot seniority list include a German pilot from World War II. Now we're going to hear that story of Captain Helmut Hetz, a pilot with the German Luftwaffe. In 1990, the editor, Captain Bill Malone of Repartee, included this story about the Luftwaffe. Herein lies the story of an event that could only happen in America. It illustrates in the noblest way that ours is a land of forgiveness and opportunity. When this individual first appeared on the scene, he was accepted with mixed emotion, in some cases with reluctance. However, he went on to earn for himself the admiration and compassion of his peers by first taking a menial job as baggage handler, then working up through the ranks of mechanic and eventually to the position of pilot. It is understandable that he would hesitate to have his story included, so we have delayed this issue entitled Eastern and the Military for some years until he felt comfortable to do so. We feel that it is important for it to be told because of his contribution to the Eastern Airlines we have, we love, and which means so much to us. In order to retain the mood he has created, we present his narrative just as he has written it. Starting in an early age, I was interested in airplanes. On my eighth birthday, I received a cake with a chocolate airplane on top, and at 13, joined a glider club. At that time, the goal of the club was to build its own glider, and SG-8 was its name. Shoulder splatter, meaning head, head splitter, it had a beam running down right in front of your head from a trapeze. 
down toward your feet. It had no fuselage, and it was an exhilarating experience to sit in it, high above the trees. The clubs were then taken over by the government, and we were driven a couple, of, um, a couple more advanced gliders. We were given a couple of more advanced gliders, and unbeknownst to us youngsters, it was pre-training for what later became the Luftwaffe. A lot of gliding was done on a hill, bungee starts, and lots of running up and down the hill to retrieve the glider. It was good therapy for the body and a wonderful lesson in working together. The war for Germany started in September of 1939. I had to wait until I turned 17 to join up with the Luftwaffe, doing the usual boot camp, and then on to the war academy with flight training involved. All kinds of airplanes, the Hinkle 126, the Fiesler Storch, 156, the Gotha 145, Bucker 131, 133, 181, the Clem 2535, the Hinkle 72, 51, Falkwolf 56, 58, the Messerschmitt 108, Arado 96, and others. I then had the opportunity to go after the heavier stuff, the Junkers 52, 86, and 88, the Seibel 204. One model, JU-86, had a diesel engine. Multi-engine school, then followed by instrument school and owned instrument instruction school. Being young, I pushed hard to get out to an active unit and was very lucky to start out with a newly built long-distance reconnaissance unit. They used a converted airplane, the JU-290. The forerunner was the JU-90, built for the Lufthansa before the war. The airplane was stripped inside. Two large rubber fuel tanks were added to extend the range. The longest flight I had took, 18 and a half hours. I'd like to add a short story here. When I checked out on the airplane, the fellow showing it to me and asked about my former training and experience. After I told him about my glider time, he said, any airplane could glide, and then he shut off all four engines. We had a hell of a time to stop the great glide and get first one and then the other engines going again. He decided not to demonstrate this type of maneuver anymore. Our job was to look for convoys flying from the southwest part of France. We were the eyes of the Navy. What a sight for a young fellow to see the never-ending conveyor belt of ships coming across the Atlantic, every ship low in the water. It began to dawn on us that even if they only were loaded with stones, we eventually would be buried in stones. We lasted for a while after the invasion at Normandy and up the Rhone River, but very soon the sky belonged to the Allies. Our airplane was a beautiful big target, full of gasoline so it could burn like a torch. Our operation came to a quick halt. We left France and ended up near Munich. Our maintenance men went into the factories to build the airplanes, and we pilots were reassigned to different jobs. The idea was to be available again for the Navy when their snorkel submarine would be operable. 
I became a test pilot for the FW, the Falker Wolf 190. Had to put on civilian clothes then. And after a while, was sent to Messerschmitt to fly the ME-262. It was not much fun because, as I said before, the sky belonged to the Allied forces and belonging to the factory test group, we were not allowed to have ammunition in the airplane per order of the Luftwaffe. I was much relieved to get a call from my boss to get back into uniform and therefore action. Now, an Arado twin-engine jet would be used for reconnaissance from Norway to England. Time, February 1945. We flew, flew from Stavanger with extra fuel tanks, took off with JATO assist, had several cameras in the belly, no guns, and flew at an altitude of 31,000 to 33,000 feet. A flight lasted about two hours and 20 minutes. My last flight required an engine shutdown, which I got back to Norway. When I got back to Norway, I was out of fuel and crash-landed right next to the airport. Report said, airplane 90%, kaput, pilot still alive. I had one more flight before the end of the war on an airplane requiring a test hop after an engine change. I was a tech pilot for the outfit, so with a cast up to my knee, off I went. It was one of the most exhilarating flights I had ever had. That is another story. At the end of the war, I became a prisoner of war and sat in, in the camp till the summer of 1946. I then returned home and after some months began studying at the University of Munich. The next exciting chapter in my life began when I met a wonderful American girl who became a war bride and ended up in Washington, D.C. There I was hired by the then station manager, George Dyson, as a ramp serviceman. I began to work on my American pilot license and was fortunate enough to get accepted as a pilot with Eastern. The rest is history. At this time again, I would like to thank all the great people and pilots who put up with me in the beginning stages of my career. What a great feeling it was to be accepted. Names such like Tom Bartley, George Cook, Doug Worthen, Trevor Kenyon, Johnny Gill, Furman Stone, and so many others. I couldn't begin to name them all. It was a great feeling to be back in the air again. Every flight was like a gift. Retirement came along. My, my body might be grounded, but my heart is still flying. Helmut Hetz. And we'll say it again. It isn't any wonder Eastern Airlines was respected among pilots of other airlines. We had the most fascinating pilots, the pilots like Captain Helmut Hetz among the ranks. Uh, I see we've got a board full of folks listening to us today, so uh, I'm going to open the microphones, and during these uh, 
readings. If you'd like to add your comment about what you just heard, Jim Holder, you remember that story about Helmet, I'm sure, very well. Well, well yes, I do. I've never had the privilege of uh, actually meeting him, though, but I certainly heard about him. And uh, yeah. everything I heard was a, he was a great guy to fly with. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, we, we'll say it again. It isn't any wonder Eastern Airlines was respected among pilots of other airlines. And that's true, very true. Um, especially in the weather category. We kind of had uh, had our own script that we flew by. Now, this is the time uh, we, we, we found a, a short story here by, again, let's see. No, this is by Tom Bar, um, uh, Art Furchgott wrote this story, and um, it's uh, about the DC three days. It's such kind of short story, so let's put it on right now, and then we have one more to follow, and that's uh, that's all. But uh, enjoy the uh, story about DC threes. Captain Tom Bartley wrote in the 1986 issue of Repartee the following story. It's titled, Nostalgic Memories of Rickenbacker's Flying Circus. My debut with Eastern Airlines was in May of 1939 on a flight from Atlanta to San Antonio in a DC-2. My captain was a brave man. He gave me a landing. We survived, and I turned around to taxi back. Then the real work began. Flying a DC-2 was child's play compared to taxiing one with that handbrake and rudder pedal combination. I went lurching along, over-controlling right and left in a demonstration of how not to taxi an airplane. Finally, I asked the captain if he would like to take it. What for, he said. I think he was really surprised. To keep from stacking the passengers in the aisle, I replied. To hell with the blank, blank passengers, he shouted. Of course, what he really meant was that I had to learn to taxi a DC-2 sooner or later, even if it was a rough job at first. But I don't think the cash customers approved of my on-the-job training. Some weeks went by, and I had finally learned to taxi a DC-2, and I was a co-pilot on a flight from San Antonio to Atlanta, with scheduled stops in Houston, New Orleans, Mobile, Montgomery. The weather was routine, except at New Orleans, where it was socked in tight. Waxoff, W-O-X-O-F, uh, weather undetermined because of obscuration of fog visibility. Nobody was going to land there until the next day at the earliest, but we boarded three or four New Orleans passengers in Houston, offloaded them in Mobile, and refunded them the price of a railway ticket back to New Orleans. They were not pleased. I heard one of them express himself to the captain. He wanted to know why we had not been informed of the New Orleans weather before we boarded the flight in Houston. He would have taken the train in the first place. By then, I was beginning to suspect that we didn't always put our best foot forward in the public relations department. In fact, I was to learn in due time many air travelers regarded us as a gang of rough and ready barnstormers with little concern for passenger comfort or convenience. And I have to concede that in those primitive days, we did sometimes give them reason to form such an adverse opinion. But there was another side to that coin. 
very definitely. I think Captain Rickenbacker would have said that our policy was to deliver a better product and let it sell itself, meaning, of course, a superior flight operation. In fair weather or foul, and what a job our rough and ready barnstormers did when the weather separated the men from the boys. On Eastern, the captains enjoyed wide latitude to do their own thinking. It was a regular practice to fly to a destination in marginal weather and then, sometimes with the aid of a timely special weather observation, complete the flight when other airlines were not operating at all. The weather stinko, nobody is flying but Eastern, was an industry-wide cliché, and it was not just an idle figure of speech. Most of our older retired captains will remember a notable occasion before weather minimums were established by the CAA when the weather in Chicago socked in tight and stayed that way for a week or more, and not a single flight operated in or out of Chicago except Eastern. And Eastern didn't cancel a trip. This was before my time with Eastern, but I have verified it with a senior retired captain who remembers it well and knows whereof he speaks. It may have been along about that time that we became known as Rickenbacker's Flying Circus. I don't know. The first time I ever heard that term was after I had been recalled to active duty with the military in 1942. I was associated with other airline pilots, who had also been recalled. After we had become well acquainted, we used to needle each other occasionally about the alleged merits and demerits of our respective airlines. I could always hold my own. All I had to say was, on Rickenbacker's Flying Circus, we specialize in flying. They always accepted it in a friendly way and maybe a touch of envy, I think. In fact, it always seemed to me that Eastern was something of a puzzle to the pilots from other airlines. They hadn't quite figured out how we managed to get by with some of the things we did. On one occasion, a pilot from another airline asked me if it was true that Captain Rickenbacker always carried a pocket full of ready cash to reimburse any captain who was fined by the CAA for violating weather minimums. There was one amusing occasion when, through no fault of my own, and, in fact, without even thinking about it, I was regarded as another low-weather Eastern Airlines performer. It was in the summer of 1943 when I was stationed in Sedalia, Missouri Air Base, with a troop carrier unit. The troop carrier command headquarters in Indianapolis ran a daily round-trip shuttle between Indianapolis and Alliance, Nebraska, with stops in Sedalia and Omaha. One of my senior officers, who was not a pilot, had been weathered in at Omaha for several days, and I needed him in my office. I contacted a friend of mine at the Sedalia base, who had been a classmate of mine in the Army Air Corps Flying School, and after that, a co-pilot and a captain on a major airline. Luke, I said, I know you are familiar with the Omaha approach. How about making me an approach plate? I've got to go and get my lieutenant who is stymied there. He did, and I did. My lieutenant told me later that he was in the control tower when I was on the approach. The tower operated, operator wanted to know 
what's an army flight doing coming in here when brand ABC Airlines is passing us up? My lieutenant knew all the answers. This is an eastern pilot, he said. Of course, there was nothing fair about the comparison. Nobody thought that my eastern background had imparted to me any knowledge uh, or any skills that the other airline pilots didn't have. Also, the weather at Omaha was as low as it had been reported. So I get some unearned credit, but I didn't object. Those days are ancient history now, and the airline business is a different ball game. As all a matter of pushing buttons, the modern pilots tell me, well, I'm glad that my flying was done in the old days. Like, for example, when I was a co-pilot on a DC-3 from Atlanta to Chicago with the late J. Shelley Charles early in 1940. Shelley was one of the most spectacular spectacular captains. Our Indianapolis station called to inform that the ceiling there had gone to 200 feet. In those days, the standard minimum was 300 feet with the limited landing aids that we had at the time. Tell him we'll be right down, Shelley said with a positive delight. He went over the low-frequency range station on final, flew down to 200 feet on a southeast heading to intercept the approach lights at a right angle, then did a, did, then did a steep 180-degree turn to the left and landed northwest into the, into the wind. He made it look so easy, nothing to it, just a piece of cake for Shelley Charles. Shelley was the only captain I ever flew with who would land when the weather was reported below limits. What a guy. And what an airline. Thank the good Lord for my early days on Rickenbacker's Flying Circus. Well, by golly, I did have the rest of the Flying Circus story. I'm glad glad it was uh, uh, the mislabeled is what I had done here. But finally, to uh, finish the broadcast before we get into a chat session here, this is a time in our broadcast to share a poem. It's a short poem written by Eastern Pilot and, and some anonymous poets, the editors included, about our profession. This one, this uh, such poet, one such poem is titled Trust. I think you'll like it. A poem in the 1987 repartee is titled, One of the Trusted. You are at cruising altitude. The westering sun is pink on the disk. Your eyes flicks the gauges. The engines are contented. Another day, another dollar. You look down at your hands on the wheel. They are veined and hard and brown. Tonight you notice they look a little old. And by George... They are old, but how can this be? Only yesterday you were in flight school. Time is a thief. You have been robbed. And what have you to show for it? A pilot, 20 years a pilot, a senior pilot. But what of it? Just a pilot. Then the voice of the stewardess breaks in on your reverie. The trip is running full, 84 passengers. She began... Can she begin to serve dinner to the passengers? The passengers, oh yes, the passengers. 
You notice the line of them coming aboard, the businessmen, the young mothers with the children in tow, the old couple, the two priests, the four dog faces. A thousand times you have watched them foul aboard and a thousand times disembark. They always seem a little gayer after the landing than before the takeoff. Beyond doubt, they are always somewhat apprehensive aloft. But why do they continuously come up here in the dark sky despite their apprehension? You have often wondered about that. You look down at your hands again, and suddenly it comes to you. They come because they trust you, you the pilot. They turn over their lives and their loved ones and their hopes and dreams to you for safekeeping. To be a pilot means to be one of the trusted. They pray in the storm that you are skilled and strong and wise. To be a pilot is to hold life in your hands, to be worthy of faith. No, you have not been robbed. You aren't just a pilot. There is no such thing as just a pilot. Your job is a trust. The years have been a trust. You have been one of the trusted. Who could be more? Well, that's our reading from the best of repartee, a history recorded by its pilots and poems, like the one that you just heard. The Retired Eastern Pilots Association's official magazine um, presented many, many such stories and I hope you'll stick around for some REPA chat in just a minute. I see we have several people on our producer's board, and uh, I think I'm going to go back to producer's school. Uh, I think I can fly an airplane, but I sure can't fly this little old panel that I have in front of me. Uh, okay, let's see who we've got and who wants to talk the most. I uh, see we've got uh, folks like uh, Jim Holder. Well, Jim uh, is uh, the editor of the great magazine we talk about every Thursday. And uh, would you like to say a few things about what you've just created here to replace the magazine, Jim? Well, well, yeah, uh, it's uh, much smaller, much smaller. Uh, it's called the Repartee Newsletter, and it came in at 20 pages. Uh, this is the first one. I, I assume we're going to have a few more before we hang it up. But uh, it it went out in the midst of this uh, virus, and we had trouble getting it all together, and we did, and with the help of Kelly Frizzell, our uh, graphics lady, and Richard Nichols, our IT lady, a guy rather, and we were able to get all of this over to Jerry Cross, who lives on the other side of Atlanta. I live 20, 40 miles east of Atlanta, and he does the same thing west in Douglasville. But we got it to Gary by electronics, and he went and to a local printer, and lo and behold, they were open, and they welcomed the job, and they printed it up in about three days. And uh, Gary went back and got it again, wearing his mask, he says. And he and his wife uh, just sat and looked at all these boxes. And we discussed it that we were going to have a stuffing school, a stuffing party, I should say, and because we were going to get about three couples, and we put these, put it in the envelopes and stamped it and addressed it, and it, it took three stamps to make a dollar and forty cents, and we were going to do all of that, and then we was going to go out and celebrate. Well, the virus took care of that. But Jerry ended up 
and his wife Marge with a bad case of uh, house fever. So nothing else to do. Uh, about three, four days, five days ago, he and Marge sat down, and in two days, they inserted all the envelopes, the fuse envelopes, placed the stamps, and put a dollar forty cents on it, and then took them to the post office next day. And I'd already told everybody they weren't going to get them till May, and uh, they got them last Monday. And uh, that made everybody happy because if people wanted to know what's the news on the, coming up on the reunion at Kennesaw in uh, August the 26th, and we'd be able to say, well, you got it right in front of you now, including Reggie. Yeah. So Jerry Falls and Marge, they they earned a lot of kudos, but uh, they had three, two 12-hour days uh, to do it and got it in. and. And uh, good, we didn't good. get to go out and have our party dinner afterwards. <laughs> That's typical Eastern, though, isn't yeah. it? Just yeah. Just going and going for their Eastern friends. Yep. Wonderful. We've got an area code 416. Uh, who might that be? Area code 416? You? Uh, Renee McKinnon. Hey, Renee. How are you? Doing fine. You're up there in... <laughs> Toronto? Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, well, it's a little bit of snow here, and uh, uh, this is the first time I've been on the show, so I'm, I'm enjoying it. Oh, good. Very good. Renee, uh, you say you've got snow there? Renee? Hello? Well, maybe it kicked me off again here. Anyone else hear me? No, I, I hear you. I, I hear okay. you. I can hear you. Hey. Well, it must. Okay. Uh, who's that? Five six one. Yeah, it's Pat Barron down in Palm Beach County. Oh. Oh, Pat. hey, Pat. Nice hey guys, how y'all doing? Hey, Moon Pat. <laughs> <laughs> You're joining tell the group, about, are you? <laughs> now, what? now tell us about Pat. Who is Pat? Pat Barron. I'm, I'm a retired. I'm a retired flight attendant. Okay. You're the president this year, aren't you? I'm sorry? Aren't you the president of uh, Eastern Airlines? Is that what they call it? Oh, no, ma'am. No. Oh, no, ma'am. That's not me. Oh, okay. (laughs) Oh, no, ma'am. That's another person. (laughs) Well, we're glad you tuned us in. And uh, who is that, uh, Neil? Who is that? Pat, Pat, say your last name again. Baron? Tell Moon, tell Moon Pie that this is Pat Barron. Pat Barron. Barron? Say hey to Mo- Moon, Moon Pie. Yeah, Pat Barron. <laughs> I believe I, I, I know you, don't I? Moon Pie, is that you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How sweet. Yeah. <laughs> Moon Pie. <laughs> yeah, we you, go You know back. where that came from, don't you? Because the chief pilot used to call him Moon Pie because he said he could not fly over Jackson, Mississippi without landing and getting him a Moon Pie and an RC Cola. <laughs> that was Terry Hudson. Terry he Hudson. started calling me Terry Hudson with the captain that named me Moon Pie. We do go back a long way. <laughs> I forgot we that. Do, moon don't pie we? Oh, my goodness. It's nice to hear from you and tell Miss Carrie I said hey. Okay. All right. 
Now we've got area code 561. Where am I? Uh, that was, uh, is that Toronto? Did I just talk 561 to? is the mess. Uh, no, 561 is Palm Beach. That's, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. That okay. Well, um, do you uh, know uh, the other silver liner um, that's in um, where they held the meeting last year? Um, oh, there's a bunch of us. There's a bunch of silver liners down here. I'm not active with them because, oh, Lord, I went out and got myself a real estate license, and it's about to kill me. Oh, wow. <laughs> but I, be- I belong to silver liners. But, um, yeah, it's a great group. It's a real nice group. Oh, it is, absolutely. Very good. Nice having you with us, Pat. I hope you'll yeah, revisit here often. Well, yeah, I don't tune in all the time, but, you know, we've all got extra time on our hands right now, and it's a pleasure to do this. Oh, good. Very good. It's a very interesting so, uh, show. Um, I loved hearing the uh, letter that you wrote. Well, I didn't write uh, a letter. I didn't write a letter. No, I'm talking about Neil's letter. I'm sorry. Okay. Okay. Uh, which letter was that? I forgot, Dorothy. <laughs> well, it's the one that you, the one that you wrote out of the. Isn't that a letter that they sent into the repartee that you printed? Well, you know, since uh, since I've got uh, Jim Holder on the line, <clears throat> I'd like to tell you that doing the work of being the editor of that magazine was is quite a challenge and takes a lot out of you. And I remember when Bill Malone, who was the editor like Jim 15 years, uh, putting the uh, magazine together, taking it from one format to another format, and then asking me if I would take over. He just got tired of doing it. And I said, sure, why not? Don't have anything to do here in Pensacola, Florida, where I was living. And so at any rate, uh, I just getting ready to move over to Jacksonville, and I did, and I met a, a Mr. John Engel. A lot of you know John. He was a station manager here, and he was with Eastern for 42 years. And on top of that, during World War II, he was, uh, he was a captain aboard a, uh, a tent, a, uh, a, what do you call it, destroyer escort. And during the war, he actually got a Japanese submarine uh, that they uh, threw that. the cans. Mm. They had some cans on the, the the escorts, and this particular escort was the USS Manlove. Manlove, and you can look it up on the uh, internet. And the history of of John's command uh, on that ship showed them uh, that they had spotted a submarine, a Japanese submarine, and they threw the cans off what they had. They had just a couple of cans on it, the bombs that they call cans, and they rolled them off, and sure enough, up comes debris of the submarine. So they were credited with uh, a submarine kill. But anyhow, an amazing man. I really got to know him here doing the uh, magazine, and uh, he, he graduated from the Navy as an admiral, rear admiral, and... Um, we put this book together that uh, I thought was a very good collection of the good stories that we're reading now. 
And uh, but I will never forget when Bill Malone passed the magazine on to me. He didn't tell me much about how it was put together, and uh, I didn't want to waste any money from uh, Repa, and so we decided to tackle it as best we we could. And I hired a print shop here, and and the guy that did the printing, and I had a deadline like. Jim, you have deadlines all the time, and this was my mm. first one, and I decided to do the story about Rickenbacker, Eddie Rickenbacker, and uh, he was on the cover of that magazine, And but uh, the story, really the story was that when we took it to the printer, he didn't know how to put the thing together the way we uh, showed him how <laughs> Bill Malone had done it, so we had to do it ourselves. We were there three or four days putting together a 70 or 80 page magazine and it was done by signatures page after page which a long page is a magazine and of course it's got four sides on that page or four pages on that one signature and we had to fold those suckers and then saddle stitch them <laughs> over 2,000 oh, wow. of those magazines we put together oh no and then put them in plastic bags and sent them out. So I decided, boy, <laughs> you know, i got to figure out how this is done because I can't last doing it this way. So we did find <laughs> some good help, and we continued publishing. And we changed a few things that Bill had changed. We went to a three-column magazine type of uh, format and put some color to it. And, and then Jim Holder... Uh, besides that, when he took over and did an outstanding job of putting that magazine together, and um, it was really the envy of uh, a lot of other retired pilots association uh, associations, and they used to call me and ask me how how we were putting together such a fine magazine. I said, well, it's credit was due to Bill Malone. And uh, but it was a, a great magazine, still is, and and I think uh, Jim, if you could encourage people to write some stories for it, we'd love to broadcast them on the oh, air. Oh man, if I, I went way beyond encouraging. I was twisting arms, demanding, and offering payment, and trying to fix them up with a nice-looking flight attendant or something. You know, if they would just write <laughs> something, please, please. As a matter of fact, my last issue at the Repartee magazine, the signatures, as you said, we did them in in 16-page uh, signatures, and it went from 96 pages to 80 pages. And I even had to put one story in there about me back when I was learning to fly in the Air Force that I'd written many years ago. And uh, for whatever reason, I don't remember it before I took over. And I ended up having to use that article just to make 80 pages. But uh, <laughs> I tell you, the well had run dry. And, yeah, uh, I had yeah. I had some people I'd always depend on with uh, Jim. Uh, oh God, I can't remember names anymore. Blackburn, Jim Blackburn, he wrote about three real good articles. Yeah, for yeah. Me. Some yeah. other guys did, and and uh, but uh, the key to what what you did with your group annual and everything, I had graphics to designer Kelly Frizzell, and the first magazine I had, I had some guy, and I've said. It, it just like drove me nuts getting that first magazine out for many reasons. And he doubled the cost on the second magazine. He said, I gave you a break on the first one and I'm gonna I'm gonna 
do it. This is a graphics designer. And he said, I'm going to have to double it for the next one. I said, no. And I wrote him a letter. Mm-hmm. I said, I'm really happy to write this letter because I'm telling you, you ain't ever going to work for me again. And luckily, I had found Kelly Frizzell, and she did a wonderful job. And my daughter worked for a big printing company here in Atlanta by the airport. And she took over, they took over doing the printing. So all I had to do was just sit back and get a few yeah. stories put it together yeah. and, and all that. And it came out, and everybody graduated, congratulated me. And I said, I didn't do hardly anything. I had a graphic <laughs> designer and a printing company. My daughter worked for the printing company. And, and we were off in the run, and I think I ended up doing 26 magazines. Well, you know, Jim... And, uh, uh, the the uh, collage of pictures that we took at the reunions, and mm-hmm. Bill Malone had started that, and he put it uh, on several pages, just pictures mm-hmm. of heads, and uh, I thought that was pretty uh, pretty neat. So mm-hmm. when we had a reunion, the first reunion, uh, as the editor, I got all the pictures gathered, and Peggy and I sat on the floor and took our scissors. <laughs> and went back to uh, our elementary days and and clipped around those pictures and stuck those faces where we thought, you know, uh, that uh, they were lined up in rows almost as best we could. And then uh, sent it off to the press to, to appear in the magazine. But that took a lot of time to cut around all those faces, you know. I bet. Yeah. But that was a great, great magazine, and I'm glad that Jerry Frost uh, thought about putting it uh, on a disc, all of the mm-hmm. magazines, starting with the very yep. first newsletter all the way up to your last issue, I believe, Jim. Yeah, I think he's got it managed, and then, then, then that was another wonderful jewel having him doing that, not to mention the fact he did an outstanding and still does job as a treasurer. Oh, treasurer. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. He has really been a big help to me on the magazine. So. Well, he's been the treasurer since uh, uh, John Billings, I guess. Uh, that's been no, 10, 15 no, years Beth, ago, isn't it? Beth Nellis took Nellis, over. Nellis, that's right. Dick Nellis' his wife. Yeah. No, not Dick. Beth, his wife. Okay. <laughs> that's a <old> okay. secret. <laughs> <laughs> he was Dick Nellis' the treasurer, but his wife did it all. Okay. He said, back, you had that grin of his. You say, yeah, I'm the treasurer. Come here, Beth. Take care of me. And, uh, when, and when she uh, stepped down, uh, Carrie uh, and the gals went out and got a beautiful vase and uh, had it engraved and all that kind of stuff, you know. Yeah. And they presented it to her with a dozen roses at the, uh, I've forgotten which one, one of the conventions at the banquet that night. And, and we made Dick sit out in the audience. We couldn't let her come up and get it, you know. <laughs> so well, that's right. He did it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. John Billings was uh, was the one before Dick uh, was right. the treasurer. I think he was about right. 10 years there, and, and John and I mm-hmm. were on the board at that time. And uh, mm-hmm. great group of guys uh, and uh, great yeah. stories. So I want to send you a story, and you can put it in there. You don't have to, or whatever. And uh, that I wrote uh, that uh, I see if I could get myself published. <laughs> oh yeah, man, send it on. If you have room for it, Wait, how often you put it? How often are you going to put it out? Well, 
I, I told them that I would really work on something here to get it out because we've had a lot of guys pass away and we didn't do the uh, the uh, paragraphs by the family. We just listed the names in there. But yeah. uh, I told them, you know, I stepped down last year and nobody stepped yeah. up. So I had to come back yeah. and step back up again. So yeah. uh, I told them I'd do a newsletter, not a, not a uh, magazine. And it's much smaller. I don't think it'll it might be 16 pages next time. I don't know. But uh, we, we may do it as, a, as an envelope and a letter. You know, we're required by the bylaws to publish the last uh, document before mailing, before the uh, reunion. We are supposed to present the list of officers for next year. And yeah. we got to come out with something because uh, the nominating committee, is, which is the last three guys that have present been out of office, and the one that's been out of office the longest is the chairman, and that's Jim Gardner and, and Bud Robbins and Johnny Steinmetz. They're going to come up with a proposed slate of officers for next year, and, uh, and we have to put that out in the mail to the to the members. So it'll it'll be a newsletter. It might not be as bigger newsletters we got now, but it depends on how big that article is you're sending. And uh bigger the better. Oh, it's it's about a half page, I guess. Oh, short okay, short novel. Well, uh, not a novel, yeah. but um mm-hmm. short story. Well uh who else do we have out there? Chuck, are you with us? I'm still here. I'm just uh, Don and Dorothy? I'm still here and so is Don. 416, uh, that's Renee. Are you back with us? Uh, yeah, my phone uh, died on me, so uh, I'm I'm back again. You must have <laughs> heard me screaming at you. Yeah, where are you, Renee? <laughs> yeah, I heard you. But I was asking you before you disappeared, uh, you have snow in Toronto? Uh, yes, it's coming down right now. My I ordered golly. it for the show. <laughs> yeah, we're down oh, around Figaro. Right. Wow. It won't last too long, but it's here, and it's, it's yeah, it's real snow. My golly. Well, once well. in a while, when I was in Massachusetts, we would have it in April uh, for Easter, and uh, in March we used to have blizzards, so I guess it's not yeah. uncommon in the northern states. Yeah. We don't have snow down where I am. <laughs> <laughs> Except for one time, back in 1917, well, I'm going to have to, we only have just a few minutes here, and so I'm going to play our music in the background and sign off for this week, and we'll continue it next week. Again, Thursday, and if you're still locked in your homes, uh, come on and join us at 3 p.m. on Thursday. We'll have some more readings and some more Eastern talk, just like we've been doing. Don't forget the good news about Mark. Yeah, Mark, go ahead, uh, Dorothy, real fast. Well, Mark just notified us today that uh, there is no cancer anywhere, and he is just absolutely thrilled to death. Fantastic. People may or may not know he just had surgery uh, this week and been in the hospital ever since, supposed to get out uh, Sunday. 
but he's cancer-free and no cancer in any tissue, and we're just elated, and we're just yeah. thank God and thank Mark for letting us know we're all we're keeping our fingers uh, crossed and our prayers said, so thank you. Great news. Very good. Yeah. Yeah, Everybody good. Still, who, who, who is that, Mark? Who? Mark, Mark Porter. Porter. He does, Porter. Yeah, he does Porter. the Eastern. Uh, New Eastern. From, uh, Miami, right, for Eastern yeah. Airlines 3.0. Okay. Yeah. Right. Okay, very good. Well, until next week, we'll uh, listen to this music here. And our sign-off music is playing in the background, as you hear. So we'll uh, see you again next week, same time, when we continue our trip through the pages of Repartee magazine of the Retired Eastern Pilots Association. Remember, the EAL Radio Show Monday evening at 7 p.m. will bring you the best aviation stories of 2019, Monday, April 20th. So long, Eastern, and so long to our Eastern family. And until Monday night, we love you, Eastern. Thanks for listening in. Good show, Neil. Good on the radio. Thanks. Bye, all. Fading out of sight. Don't leave me, I cry. Don't take that airplane ride. But you locked me out of your mind. And left me standing here behind. Silver Somewhere in flight They're taking you away Leaving me lonely Silver wing Slowly fading out of sight